Welcome to Marketing Week Meets the CX50 in partnership with Zone and Cognizant Digital Experience. My name is Russell Parsons, Editor-in-Chief of Marketing Week and Festival of Marketing, and I am your host. Over the past six years, Zone and Marketing Week have compiled a list of the UK's top 50 customer experience professionals, the CX50. And in this podcast series, we talk to members of this esteemed group about what puts them and their brands at the forefront of customer experience. We've met organisational leaders, brand guardians, disruptors, technologists and growth drivers, all members of this exclusive group. Joining us today is Chris Carter, Strategic Transformation Director at Specsavers, a global role he took on in January this year after more than two years heading marketing and e-commerce in the UK. Now, Specsavers is a high street staple with a burgeoning online presence. But where is it on its CX journey? Where does it want to get to? And how is it going to get there? Just some of the questions we're going to answer today. Alongside Chris, we have Esther Duran, Chief Experience Officer at Zone, where she is tasked with helping partners transform user experience and CX through digital and cultural transformation. Chris, Esther, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Russell. Yeah, thanks for having us. Delighted to be here. Hi, Russell. Chris, let me begin with you. I mentioned in my introduction that you took on a new role at the start of the year. So just as uh, by way of a scene setter, describe to everybody listening what your CX remit is now and how that has changed. Yeah, sure. No, no problem at all. So um, I formally did the uh, the marketing director and, and e-commerce director role for um, the Specsavers business across the UK and Ireland. So I guess for the, certainly for the last sort of four or five years, my remit had been very much focused on those two markets thinking about how we could advance the customer experience along with some of my colleagues responsible for, for retail and such like over the last few years. At last autumn, I stepped into a new role, so Strategic Transformation Director for Specsavers Group. And so that has sort of slightly changed the, the role that I play there. So I, it's tasks, I'm tasked now more with actually defining what that long-term vision is for our, for our customer experience and thinking about how we develop and devise that strategy that, 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 that gets us to that vision, that enables us to achieve that. But crucially, how do we do that across all of the, all of the markets that we operate in? And we operate across, across the world today in 11, 11, different, uh, 11 different countries. So uh, a broader remit, if you will, that's maybe looking a little bit more into the longer term rather than necessarily the, the year-on-year uh, annual sort of trading rhythm that you typically find in, in, in one market. Thank you. All right, let's talk about that long-term vision uh, for Specsavers, in particular with regard to CX. I mean, how would you describe where Specsavers is at the moment on its CX journey? So it's an interesting one. I, now, ultimately, we you know, we started life as a as a bricks and mortar business in the UK. That was the first first market that we launched in back in 1984. And obviously, over the course of the last 40-odd years, we have grown that footprint across the world, but we do operate a bricks-and-mortar model alongside an e-commerce offering in all of the markets that we trade in. So how would I sum it up today? Well, I think actually the, the experience that a customer would receive in attending one of our stores, based on the feedback that we get from, from customers uh, on a day-by-day basis, is, is extremely high. It's a fantastic service that, that most customers will receive. However, we see an impact on that customer satisfaction when we're particularly busy in store because our colleagues simply don't have the time to be able to offer that same level of service to every customer. So at peak times of the day or at peak times of the year, 
you will see a potential impact on the satisfaction and the experience for our customers in our stores. I don't think the same could be said about that high level of, uh, of satisfaction when it comes to the online environment. So actually the way that you can go about uh, purchasing contact lenses or in some of our markets, glasses from us online, or actually jumping between both, which we refer to as a blended journey of actually using some of our online services, such as to book an appointment and then coming into store for your test or to make a purchase. We're not necessarily hitting the same levels of satisfaction and, and the same levels of experience that we would like to there. So a big focus for us across all of our markets is how do we ensure that actually Regardless of how you want to interact with us, uh, whether that's to buy a product, whether that's to get some information, to book an appointment, to actually receive some treatment, whether that's online or in-store or a bit of both, how do we ensure that we can hit those heights of the customer experience that we've managed in the past solely through the store environment? And that's very much a journey that we're on today. And on the online business, I mean, thinking about my own experience, I'm a glasses wearer, have been for many, many years. It feels like the only thing that well, the only way to, for me to you know, go through the experience of getting my eyes tested, checking glasses, uh, and then getting to the bottom of funnel to purchase, the only way that that could actually be done is in person. I mean, so how are you approaching delivering an experience online? Because it's a very personal journey for a glasses wearer to go from, as I say, test through to purchase. So yeah. Yeah. It must be really difficult to, well, it's not about replicating it, is it? It's about doing things differently and in a way that makes sense in that environment. That's right. I, I think in a sense, it offers an opportunity in that you can provide a more personalised experience on the assumption you know who that customer is, who that browser is. You're, you're potentially in a position where you can actually tailor that experience a little bit more in the online environment. To, to that of the physical store environment. But it's an, an interesting point you raise in regard to actually what's the sort of what's the art of the possible. And I, and I think because of the complexity of the product, if we think particularly about glasses, um, ultimately every pair of glasses is a bespoke product. It's bespoke to your prescription. And as you'll know, even the fit of the frame actually is something that's really, really difficult to get right. So I think as a result of that, we've maybe seen less disruption within the category than we maybe have when we look across other categories and other retailers. But that, that is not to say it's not coming. When we look at advances in technology around the ability to conduct an eye test online or to be able to match and fit the frames to your face online, that technology is really, really uh, gaining a, a significant degree of pace in terms of how much more effective it's becoming. And so a big part of what we need to do is actually keep, uh, you know, monitor and, and work with those businesses that are inventing those new types of technology so we can understand actually when has it got to a point in maturity where it can really help enhance the experience rather than potentially undermine it or erode confidence for that customer that might be, might be trying to purchase glasses for the first time. So I think um, it's very much a case of timing, I think, with some of these things around actually when is it right to be testing it in a confined market and when is it right to be rolling it out to a much broader cohort of customers. It is a challenge, isn't it? I suppose there is a, a general expectation of a level of experience wherever a customer is interacting, but you should consider at the same time as having a consistency and trying to be seamless that each and every point of contact at each channel should have its own North Star, it's uh, uh, different expectations and different measures of success. Is that a fair analysis? Yeah, we, we, we've tended to use a sort of rule of thumb around actually 
how we prioritise different experiences or different pieces of work that are going on around the world. So we don't have one core customer experience team within the business that are effectively developing new experiences across the globe. There is a sort of framework that we've built and actually that provides a bit of a guide so that countries or different teams within a country know what to prioritise. So for us, you know, it's, it's about making it simpler. Is it about making it more convenient? Is it about making it more personalised, more inspiring? Or actually, is that about positioning us as experts to really reassure those, that customer? They're the sort of five sort of criteria, if you like, that we would ask our colleagues around the business to consider when they're thinking about building a new product or making a change actually to how the experience works. Is it, is it ticking one or more of those boxes in order to take us in the right direction towards that towards that North Star, as you say? Yeah, and continuing with the, the phrase North Star, I mean, where do you and Specsavers want to get to? What will good look like you've been very honest in talking about where you are right now and some of the challenges that you face in getting yeah. there but what's the end what's the end game here um i think we're, we're probably quite fortunate in a sense in that there's quite a clear purpose that runs through the business because we were we're privately owned so we were founded by um doug and mary perkins uh, back in 1984 they still work in the business today they're in the office today they are every day uh, they're some john's chief exec and as a result of that the purpose, the reason they set up the business was to change lives through better sight and hearing. And and that sort of runs throughout the organization in terms of business or the businesses we've chosen to purchase or the services that we've chosen to move into. And so really that really sits at the top of that um at the top of that long-term goal. How can we change more lives? So that could be by helping more people through being as accessible as possible or trading in more countries. It could be through actually the services that we provide. So particularly in the UK, we offer many more health-related services now. So we support around um, pre- and post-operation cataract and glaucoma monitoring in some parts of the country as well. So there are other health services outside of the standard sort of eye test and and purchase of glasses or or hearing aids. So I guess that sits at the very top. How can we do that for, for more people? If I were to go down a layer, though, into actually, well, how do we translate that in terms of customer goals that we've got? We've sort of separated it into three areas. So the, the first one for us is around how we can really drive advocacy. So through MPS, how can we ensure that actually customers aren't just satisfied, they're real advocates because they're delighted with the experience they've received. The, the second is how we can reduce the number of detractors to an absolute minimum. So how can we ensure that everybody that walks through the door has a fantastic experience because it's it's really important to us uh, that we're accessible and we're affordable to all. So actually, how can you reduce the number of detractors that choose spec savers? And then the final area is those customers that have never tried us. So how can we enhance and improve consideration amongst that cohort of the market that have never tried spec savers before? So they're the sort of the three goals, if you like, from a customer perspective that would ultimately get us closer to achieving that purpose that I mentioned earlier. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. Uh, a, a great purpose, by the way. I mean, obviously, there's lots of arguments about brand purpose and lots of critics that would throw accusations uh, at those companies, perhaps who are stretching and being inauthentic in, uh, in stating a purpose. But what you've got there is a genuine one and one that you can link with commercial outcomes and one that absolutely drives the experience or the 
objectives for customer experience in your business as well. Esther, if I could bring you in on this conversation about marrying purpose and customer outcomes. I mean, what does good look like in this regard if you, for brands who have a clear purpose and an authentic one, and how do they use that to better serve customers? Your thoughts, please. Thanks, Russell. I think um, when brands uh, um, design uh, the strategy and the purpose and, you know, they have the North Star vision, as you mentioned earlier, um, they think that the job is done and then they don't have to do anything else. When actually that's the easiest part, the most difficult part is to track down the success and obviously to be able to understand if that strategy, that North Star vision um, is working well with your uh, customers you need to test it, you need to listen, you need to monitor, but also you need to be tracking down back to those outcomes or the lack of the outcomes as well uh, to your brand strategy. And I think that is, uh, is vital. I see brands that create beautiful strategies and purpose campaigns, but they don't track it back and um, they, don't, they don't know if they're in the right path to success. So obviously um, I can test in uh, monitoring and making sure that, that you have those KPIs established from the beginning um, is very, very important uh, to understand if, you know, your purpose, your brand purpose is, is, is kind of marrying and in the same path as your customer outcomes. Your customer will never lie to you. They, they will say if your product or your service is good or is bad and uh, you just need to read the reviews um, to understand, you know, what are you doing right and, and what are you doing wrong to improve? Wise words. I mean, what you said there about purpose, I mean, we could have a whole podcast and indeed um, I have hosted whole podcasts and sessions at uh, conferences about the virtues or otherwise of brand purpose. But what you're saying there, uh, Esther, is absolutely 100% correct. Uh, if you've got a purpose, then don't just see it to make yourself and everybody else at the organisation feel good about themselves. Uh, measure it, deliver it, be true to it. Uh, and you can only do that if it's authentically at the core of what you do, like spec service. Anyway, I'm going to just step off my soapbox for a moment and bring Chris back in. Um, something that I'm going to have to just caveat this. This might be me descending into cliche, but I was really interested in terms of expectations, customer expectations, whether or not different uh, generations, different uh, age groups have different expectations and whether or not you consider that when you are setting customer experience strategy and indeed executing it. The reason I said cliche is it would be very easy perhaps to say that young people, the younger people that are engaging with Specsavers are perhaps more inclined to interact with you online, maybe have different expectations of a physical experience. I just wonder if um, age does play a factor uh, when you're determining what to deliver from an experience point of view. Yeah, it's good. It's a good question, Russell. I think um, it, it plays a factor, but uh, I think you're right in that you have to be a little bit careful about about being too presumptuous. Uh, I think the other factor for us actually is how age relates to, frankly, relates to the the pathology of the eye and the types of services you may need offers and therefore the sort of uh, the expectations or behaviours that that sort of engenders. So uh, I think if you think about some of the health-related services that we provide, 
many of those customers prefer the reassurance of being able to spend a little bit more time face-to-face with our clinicians. And they typically are older customers that will require that support. But probably a bigger factor in terms of how confident or not a customer is feeling about a visit to Specsavers is, and you mentioned it earlier yourself, actually, is whether you've ever worn glasses before. You know, the the, the first time you you step foot into a test room and you're told actually your prescription's t- changed and you're going to need glasses. And unfortunately, it does happen to all of us as we hit our sort of mid to late 40s with with the onset of, uh, of, of presbyopia. That's a very different mindset and a very different set of needs that that, that, that customer has. Uh, as a 40-something that's never put a pair of spectacles on their face before and potentially the self-conscious nature of doing that versus maybe a a 60-something that has worn them their their whole life and is maybe much more confident around the type of product uh, or the type of solution they're looking for. I think equally, if we look to the way that we're seeing customers book appointments now, particularly driven as a result of the pandemic, um, we see no real difference with the, the percentage of older customers versus younger customers choosing to book online rather than telephoning the store, for example. So the the idea of that sort of much more convenient, sort of low-touch nature of being able to deal with some administrative tasks, it's just as important to a 40, 50, 60, 70-something as it is to maybe a 20-something customer. So it will typically be that sort of attitudinal behavioural sort of segmentation that we will look to rather than necessarily age as being the real determinator of, uh, of the type of experience we need to serve up. And we were just there exposed the folly of generational labelling when uh, segmenting and targeting audiences. It's always about attitudes and personas. Absolutely. Rather than all generations thinking and feeling and acting exactly the same way. Yeah. But again, I should... I, I, I just went back on my soapbox there for a second. I'm going to jump back on uh, off it. Um, I just ask you if I could continue with you for a moment, Chris, on the role of data. You're obviously blessed with a lot of first-party data that you collect online and indeed in store. But it's that's one thing, having the data. Uh, another thing, joining the dots between it and ensuring that you do deliver a journey for a customer that is meaningful. And obviously data plays an increasing part, an increasing role in that. So what role would you say that data plays and what are some of the challenges that you are facing in marrying up that data? Yeah, I I would say it plays the the pivotal role, really. And I would say it sits as one of the big opportunities, maybe barriers at the moment towards achieving that, achieving that vision. So when I think about the sort of foundational changes that we're looking to make as an organisation, alongside the platforms on which we're serving our customers, so our online platform and our practice management system in our stores. Data really is the the third big foundational building block there. And I think there's probably um, three challenges I would sort of pull out around that. So the potential uh, is enormous in terms of the, you know, the competitive advantage it could serve as given the, the scale of our organization and the amount of time that we've been, uh, we've been helping customers over the years. We've built up a really strong database in that respect. But the continual investment that's needed in the structure and the technology that holds and connects that data is a, is a big one for us. The governance by which we actually manage that data in, a, in an, in an organisation that's grown organically around the world. And then the third thing is actually around the quality of that data as well, because, of course, certainly for the first 35 years, that data was obtained by a, a colleague in store keying it into a machine. 
rather than a customer choosing to do that themselves on a, on a web form and, and, and such like. So actually the quality of the data and the recognition across all 40,000 colleagues that work in Specsavers about the responsibility they have and the importance of ensuring that we really look after our data and we ensure it's the very best quality it can be, that they're probably the big three things that we're, that we're sort of wrestling with. If I were to think beyond that though, as to actually, well, how do we resolve that? You know, it's an enormous challenge both in terms of the commercial investment we need to make, but also in terms of the the change behavior we need to see in stores. So for me, there's a really big piece around storytelling about how we lift the conversation out of actually what the data solution is into actually what the what the business potential is and the role that we we can all play in realizing that potential. And that is that is a journey that we're, you know, we're very much on at the moment. But I would say it's yeah, it is probably the the biggest fundamental the thing that's going to make the biggest fundamental difference to the type of experiences we can provide in the future if we can get it right. And um, in terms of your journey, what are the, some of the things that you're doing to accelerate it or make sure that you get there? Uh, if you just give us a little bit of flavour of some of the things that you're doing around data. Yeah, so um, I think one of the ways that we've tried to tackle it at a country level has actually been around actually how thinking about how you're capturing data and utilising data can actually benefit our stores, our store colleagues, as well as our customers. So a, a great example of that really is where we have... Um, where customers are increasingly booking appointments online and we're able to serve up reminders and prepare them for the appointment that they're going to have. Of course, if we've not captured the right details and we've not captured the right preferences as well and the GDPR regulations, we're we're much less likely to see that customer turn up for the appointment and we're much less likely for them to turn up prepared and actually to turn up prepared and have the right expectations around what's going to happen uh, when they're in the store. Likewise, from a from a colleague perspective, then it ensures that actually they're reducing the number of no shows, which could you know were a significant problem a, a few years ago, and also enables them to provide a a better experience for the customer, but be able to do it in a much more timely manner than they maybe have had been able to do in to do in the past, and linking actually the importance of capturing the right details and the right preferences to actually how that is going to benefit both the customer experience and the effective and efficient operation of the business, we found to be a really useful way of actually getting our colleagues to recognise the importance of some of those tasks in the store that maybe on the face of it don't seem as important as others, when in actual fact, actually, they're they're potentially crucial to the type of experience you're going to be able to deliver and how effectively you can operate your your business in the future too. So it's been looking at... uh, opportunities like that where we can begin to move the dial a little a little bit particularly in terms of quality of data and therefore really leverage stuff like uh, CRM programs to be able to really maximize the potential there there's some really positive uh, potential outcomes there if you turn the data into genuine insight by the sounds of things Esther on that We've heard just from Chris there about the opportunities and challenges, just focusing on some of the challenges. What have you seen are some of the common pitfalls around data management and its role in delivering experiences? And what can brands do to overcome some of those challenges? Yeah, I think, uh, Russell, uh, having too much data is never a good thing. Well, having too much of whatever it is is never a good thing, but data is is not uh, an exception. Even though some marketeers will disagree with me, um, I think if if you don't have the right data strategy, it will be really difficult to go through all that data that you have collected and have any uh, meaningful outcome for it. 
some business don't even know what to do with all that data that they have and, and sometimes even misuse it. And we all know uh, personalization is vital to deliver uh, the right experiences, but when the personalization is not done correctly, we uh, consumers, we get pissed off and, and we just kind of block the brand uh, is treating us like everybody else. So I think um, the first thing is to have the, a data strategy we were talking about uh, market segmentations and how uh, wrong it could be sometimes because, you know, I know I'm in a category, in a box where we do market segmentation, but in the background, we know that we are not always, you know, female, 40 to 45, living in uh, West London. You know, we are not the same. So um, I think it's, uh, it's very dangerous to do market segmentations just for the sake of it. Another thing that actually Chris was mentioning earlier is storytelling. I think having um, um, a content strategy and content design uh, embedded within your data people is really important because sometimes data analysts, they will take, you know, the bulk of data and just throw it at you. But actually the content designers and the content strategies, they're the ones um, curving all those words and uh, making the storytelling for your customers. And we know, Russell and Chris, that we love when, uh, you know, they use the right words and and they enchant us with, uh, you know, the storytelling around a brand. So I think, uh, yeah, some people, they believe that they just need copywriters, but we all know that a copywriter is totally different to a content strategy and a content designer. So when we look at the customer journey and we see the touch points, what are the words, what are the messages that we are going to, to send to those users? Not the segmentation, but you know, to the Russells and the Esthers and the Chris's um, of the world, just to, to make that personalization and for us to, to read the message and say, oh my gosh, this is so beautiful. And, and they are talking to me, actually. They are not talking to my neighbor. They are talking to me. So, so yeah, I think the right messages at the right time to the right customers, the right storytelling is also key. I feel like giving a hear, hear in response to that. Uh, impossible to argue with such wise words. Thank you, Esther. Uh, Chris, back to you. You mentioned earlier about the pressure occasionally some of your staff are under in store at busy times of the day and the impact that that has on the experience that they deliver. I just wonder, not necessarily how are you going to make staff less busy or I'm sure it's a good problem to try and uh, have when you are busy, but um, how are you supporting and enabling staff to deliver and provide better experiences? Yeah, it's, uh, uh, as you say, I shouldn't, I shouldn't complain too much. It's a good, good problem to have. I think the way that we typically go about that is through ensuring that we're listening to colleagues every day. So we're, we're fortunate, I, I think, as well, in terms of the model of the business, that we're a joint venture partnership. So every store has at least uh, between one and three directors within that store that own that business. And so we are very tapped into actually what they're thinking and feeling on a daily basis through our teams that are out in the field. And by virtue of that, we hear about actually what it's like on the shop floor and actually what we can do to help. So I think that listening piece ends up being really important around how we can make stuff better because they're on the front line dealing with customers every day. There's a couple of things that sort of spring to mind. So one, one is very much around actually how we can save them time by removing administrative burdens. 
I think sometimes we can we can think about what we add in to enhance the customer experience. And sometimes actually it's what we can take away to just free up our colleagues to be able to spend more time with customers. Because when they do that, you really see, you know, you really see that positive feedback come through from customers. So one is around actually how can we remove some of those some some of the administrative burden they have. Another is around how we simplify the process. So um, as, as I'm sure many businesses and brands are finding, it's a tough labor market out there in terms of finding new team members. And so actually when, you've got, when you're onboarding new team members or you have a relatively high level of churn in a category such as retail, how do you make it as simple as possible for someone to be able to get up to speed with how to deliver a great, a great experience? And because we sell pretty complex products and it's not a straightforward journey of picking something off the shelf and, and purchasing it that that's been particularly important for us about how we can how we can simplify so as a new starter it's not going to take you nine 12 months to really get confident in delivering a, a great experience for customers the last area is actually how we can help directly with the customer then as well so are the things that we can do that take that weight off the colleague by actually asking a, a customer to tell us a bit more about themselves for example around their needs and preferences before they arrive in store so that actually our colleagues are armed with that information before the customer arrives and it's not a process they necessarily need to go through in store, thereby saving a little bit of time and allowing the colleague to really focus on how they provide a fantastic experience rather than necessarily needing, needing to go through some of the more onerous tasks that we can potentially uh, take care of online prior to the customer arriving. So that, that's just a, a bit of a flavour, if you like, of how we're trying to lighten that load and that burden so that actually you know, the ultimate goal is to free up as much time as possible for the colleague to just spend talking with and, and, delighting, the, and delighting the customer. Just a, a supplementary to that, uh, one of the uh, conversations around AI at the moment is how, and some of the advances that we've seen recently, is that it can take a lot of the mundane away from the everyday jobs that marketers indeed people in other parts of the business have uh, to free them up to really focus on what matters i don't know whether or not you guys are experimenting have done any work uh, with ai but what's your where, where are you on your ai journey at the moment chris i i would say we're, we're we're probably in that i would say we're in the foothills russell i think in terms of where we are there so it's. I think it's balancing where we see that potential risk and downside with the obvious opportunities to be able to drive more efficiency. So where we're seeing high volume, repetitive, repetitive tasks that actually we confidently believe we could um, we could take away from our colleagues needing to deliver. There's there's obvious opportunity there, and a lot of that actually is in the back end, away from the from the customer altogether. I think we'd probably be a bit more circumspect when it comes to a, a direct experience with the with the customer to just ensure that we are not we're not sacrificing i guess that authenticity and that personalization around what we do in pursuit of you know much greater efficiencies so i think that's probably a bit of a balancing act as to um, as to when it's right to introduce it and when actually that human touch while it may require a greater level of energy and and, and investment it is something that you that we don't want to lose based on the values we have as a business. And equally, we believe that the customer really appreciates as well. People, humans everywhere, breathing a sigh of relief that they, <laughs> that they have a role to play. I mean, Esther, I, I wasn't going to ask you about AI, but if you've got a point of view, you want to weigh in on the AI as aid to experience 
uh, argument, then please do. But also, I did want to get your perspective on employee experience, because I know Zone has a very strong perspective on the role of employee experience in delivering better customer experience. So pick your topic, AI, employee experience, both, I, your call. I think, Russell, it comes together because uh, we are having some conversations. Ooh, nicely with, done. Um, yeah, we're having some conversations with a few clients around automation. So basically what they are saying is that, you know, it's not efficient, the process is not efficient and um, uh, it's not consistent. So they need AI to create automation. But they are really scared that, you know, quite a lot of people is going to lose their jobs. And I always say to my clients, do you think a human being wants to be inputting data into a spreadsheet? Probably not. We don't want to do that. We want to be doing all the jobs that, you know, they are more suitable for um, human brains and, you know, for um, to use our empathetic skills and, you know, our soft skills that you know, AI, they don't have any soft skills, at least not just yet. So I think automation and AI should be, you know, we should use AI for automation, for those tasks that we don't want to do. And we should be, when it comes to employee experience, one of the strategies that we have is what happens when AI is taking over certain jobs? What are we going to do with the people that they don't have those jobs anymore? And the key is upskilling. We are working with upskilling strategies. We are working with a digitalization as well. We are working to create a different workforce. I think um, uh, the pandemic kind of put a stop in the, you know, the, back in the time, the jobs that people was doing, and it was they were a little bit more manual and less digital. I think now we need uh, a different range of um, positions, range of uh, employees, range of, uh, you know, all the topics that, that we humans, we are, we are happier working on. And it applies to any brand. So it doesn't matter if it's specs, uh, it doesn't matter if it's, um, you know, hardcore, even the petrol industry, they are looking at um, doing some of those automation. When it comes to dangerous um, jobs as well, um, we are using machineries. So I always say to my clients, this is like back in the time, the industrial revolution, when you have seven-year-old kids just picking up things and the machinery because an adult couldn't go under the machine. And then people were scared about, you know, oh my gosh, those kids are going to lose their jobs. What are they going to do? Well, they should be educated. They should go to schools. They should do other things. They're not just picking up things on the uh, very heavy and dangerous machinery. So... Yeah, let's, let's just stop thinking about AI is going to steal our jobs and, and let's just start defining what are the new roles of the future that we humans want to do. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it should always be considered like anything, uh, any piece of technology that's aided and abetted marketing or otherwise business society as a tool, as a partner at best, but definitely not as a replacement for no other reason that there's a million different privacy concerns and indeed ways that you could get it really, really, really wrong and cause yourself more problems than any operational efficiency that is provided. By way of coming to a conclusion on this conversation, I just want to get both of your perspectives on personal experiences. Firstly, you, Chris, uh, identify something that didn't go so well in your career in pursuit of better customer experience outcomes for your customers. What happened? Where did it go wrong? And what did you learn from it? 
there's probably a, a couple of things I could maybe point to there. I think I think one is maybe around where we introduced uh, technology into into the experience, into the journey that wasn't quite there, wasn't quite ready for the for what for what customers and for what our colleagues were expecting. And I think as a result of that, you don't necessarily build the confidence that you need within your colleagues to be able to utilize that that technology and see the real benefit that it brings. And as a result of that, we maybe didn't see as widespread adoption as we thought we maybe would do with that particular type of technology, which was all around choosing the right frames for you. Uh, it's interesting because I see the advances in that area coming on leaps and bounds over the sort of course of the last five, six years. This was probably about, it's probably getting on for six years ago that we did that. And I think in hindsight now, you actually look at the, the way that technology has advanced, that type of product, that type of solution is going to come back to the market and you can see it being a real success, but actually getting the timing right with when the technology is at a maturity level or a level, a level of advancement where it's really going to build confidence within the users, whether they are staff that are using it or whether they're customers that are self-serving on it. I think was a was a real learning around actually when when is the right time to introduce technology and at what kind of maturity level. I think the other one for me actually is around um, how you think, particularly if you are a uh, a business that's grown from uh, from a sort of pre digital age, how you think about plotting your way to that long term goal. So I think one of the challenges that we've maybe faced in the in the past is trying to deliver a range of digital enhancements in particular as quickly as we can in pursuit of enhancing that experience. Whereas in reality, there is some foundational work that we need to undertake first in order to be able to go quicker in the future. And I think actually sometimes knowing when it's best to sort of slow down in order to speed up over the long term is another thing to really consider when you're thinking about the the long-term vision of where you want to get to and potentially the starting point that you're at, particularly if you're maybe an older business or an older brand that's grown organically and uh, and has got big transformations around, um, particularly around the technology that they need to undertake in order to be able to to be as agile as you'd maybe like to be in the future. Thank you. I, I see the two things is very much related there. But just on the first one, I just wonder what the watch out is uh, for shorthand for everybody listening. Is that Was that an example of you guys getting ahead of your customers? So the appetite wasn't there, but the technology, well, if not quite ready, was available? Uh, or is it that you got a little bit carried away and did something for technology's sake because it was there? I think it was probably a case that maybe the technology hadn't hadn't progressed as far as we needed it to in in order for it to really build confidence once it was in market with our with our colleagues in particular. I think actually if you were to look now six, seven years on, actually how how useful the products of today would be and therefore how quickly they could build confidence in in colleagues and customers and recognise actually the benefit that it's bringing. I think you would see a different outcome today than you maybe would have done six or seven years ago. But I think actually the introduction of that technology, probably the, the maturity of it wasn't at the stage we, you know, we needed it to be in hindsight. So I think the watch out probably is just around ensuring that where particularly where something new has been invented and you're bringing it to market for the first time, just thinking about whether actually it is going to deliver enough of a benefit to really see that adoption amongst colleagues or amongst customers if it's something that is, you know, that's so new uh, and so different from what they've maybe experienced in the past. Thank you. Uh, Esther, I'm just going to skip to you for a final question. And it's, um, it's a, just a nice way to summarise for everybody listening. If there's one thing 
that you've learned, that you've seen work with clients that you've worked with, that is, if not a guarantee of success in CX, is the thing that people need to think of and think carefully about in delivering better customer experience outcomes? What would it be and why? I think it actually joins really well with uh, Chris' answer. I think adoption, adoption is key. Um, the problem that we have sometimes around technology is that we want to implement the latest technology, but either it's very expensive, so people can't buy it at that point, or the ones that have that technology, they don't know how to use it very well, or they are a minority. I think uh, bringing everyone, and I know it's really difficult to bring everybody in the journey because, you know, you will be designing products and services that will never end. But I think keeping in mind a majority part of the population is uh, essential for success in your brand. So when we are designing products and services, don't design something that the 70 plus year old are not going to be able to use only, you know, the youngsters. I use technology in the way that is going to enhance people's lives, but keep in mind as well that there will be a part of the population that you're going to be blocking their lives if you just use those digital devices that they don't know how to use. For example, now, very old people, they don't know how to do banking online and they don't have branches anymore. So they rely on people to do banking for them. So it's an example, but, you know, Russell, Chris, I'm sure you have plenty of those examples where we have marginalized people with our products and services. So I think, yes, think about the latest technology. Think about, you know, how your product and your service is going to be better than your competitors. But never forget, that at the end of the day, your customers, they are the ones that are using your services and your products. And if you don't do it in an accessible way, in an inclusive way, um, you know, you are neglecting a massive part of the population to use your brand. It's an excellent point and one that I'm going to uh, conclude on today, Esther. I mean, it's not just about and again, I'll perhaps be guilty of resorting to cliche, but it's not, it isn't just actually, I'm going to disagree with myself live. It isn't just about older people, perhaps, who don't have the same appetite for online services. If I think about my parents, that's absolutely the case. It's about giving people options and not doing something in the interests of your company at the expense of what's actually serving exactly. uh, customers, which is often giving people the choice of what to do, how to interact and giving people that option. Um, so on that note, I want to thank you, Esther, for your input, thoughts and insight today. Thank you so much, Russell. And Chris, uh, for sharing all of those things and the story of Specsavers, where you are and indeed where you want to get to. So thank you very much, both of you, for your contribution. Thanks, Chris. And thank you to everybody that listened. Until next time, goodbye from me. You have been listening to Marketing Week Meets the CX50 in partnership with Zone and Cognizant Digital Experience with me, Russell Parsons. The podcast was produced by Tim O'Donoghue at Bauer London Creative. Look out for previous episodes on marketingweek.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and SoundCloud. Until next time, goodbye.